You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We're still in the studio. We're about to wrap up a shorter weekend. Yeah. Um, but still a good one. Uh, four episodes back to back. That's draining. <laughs> it, it is. I'm, I'm, uh, I can feel it. And of course, it was my birthday yesterday. So we stayed up late and chatted. You know, that's about as close as we get to celebrating anything, right? That's us having a wild time right there. <laughs> yeah. Stayed up till almost midnight. <laughs> This is sad. <laughs> I don't know if we should admit this. <laughs> oh. But, oh, we party, man. We talk about God, and we talk about the Bible. Religion, <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Music so, videos. Those are fun. So. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was a fun time. So anyway, um, but we are back, at the, back to the Bible, and we are in going back to the second Samuel. Second, mm-hmm. Chapter 7. Chapter 7. We're picking up in... numbers involved. (laughs) Right. Well, we're picking up in verse 18. Uh, We we read God's uh, God's command to David and his promises, and then we took a break and we looked at Psalms 89 and how it ties in, and now we're back to chapter 7, and we're going to talk about David's response to God. Well, the short version of this is David says he wants to build God a house. Mm -hmm. Nathan the prophet says, hey, that sounds like a really good idea. And God comes to Nathan and says, nope, not so much. <laughs> yeah. Got another guy for that. You need to let David know. Nathan lets David know. And what's really interesting is David doesn't seem at all to be upset by what Nathan says. Absolutely. So that's cool. Uh, well, and that is that is actually one of the key points. So I'll go ahead and mention it here. When David responds to God, he never once mentions building the temple. It's like, well, now God has spoken. David has... It, it's off the table. He, not going to complain about it. Exactly. And so I think that that's really interesting and very revealing about David's character that when God speaks, David goes, oh, so this is how it's going to be. And, you know, and I think that that's part of the beauty and brilliance of David, because, you know, for most of us, when when God speaks, we're we're still looking for those loopholes. We're still trying to figure out how to make it work so we get to accomplish what we want. And David, when God talks to David, he always responds in an affirmative manner. Now, he may make some major mess-ups and mistakes, which he does, and we're going to talk about some of those because there's going to be probably the most famous one coming up very shortly in the, in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but when God confronts David, David always yields. And so um, that, I think that's the big thing we need to take away from David's story. Right. And so um, now... This is an interesting encounter with God for so many reasons, because first of all, God is speaking to David through a prophet. Now, God has spoken to David in a prophet before, uh, when Samuel did the anointing, when Gad mm-hmm. came to David when he was fleeing from Saul, um, when uh, David went back to Samuel when he was fleeing from Saul again. But most of the time, we don't have any kind of uh, record in the Bible that when God talks to David or God guides David, that David uses a prophet. Usually, David's speaking directly with God. Or that, yeah, that's what the text seems to indicate anyway. Yeah, and then there's times that David does use a prophet. He uses the umim and the thumim, and that's not in the... The and the thumim. There's no R in there. Uh, this was not? Nope. So I looked it up. <laughs> so, and... But the, Does Kaiser say it wrong? I don't know. I'm not going to talk about Kaiser. <laughs> There's just. Uh, Did I hear it wrong? We probably heard it wrong our whole lives. So I, I learned a very mm. unfortunate uh, way of saying uh, Mesopotamia from people in our lives. Uh, but it's the problem when you only see a, r- a word written. Exactly. Exactly. And so, but got to look this up at the point. <laughs> at this point. Um, we we have this uh i'm going to like be totally ashamed of my hebrew if i uh if i'm wrong we see this this shift and it is a significant shift because as king david is going to need the guidance of the prophet and it really sets up the paradigm for how the the court system is going to to work 
God is still going to speak to the king. But from here on out, the proclamations, the big proclamations to the king are always going to be one step removed. The, the king is still responsible to act on behalf of God, but it's the prophet who's going to speak on behalf of God. And you know, and the priests have their role and they mediate between God and and man. And so one of the the reasons this is significant is is significant is that no one's going to mistake the king for God in the Davidic rule. No one's going to make the this this fatal flaw of thinking that for some reason the king and the God is synonymous unlike other religions yeah to briefly recap that the other religions they were thought to be descendants from the nephilim exactly whether or not they used the term nephilim or not they it was some kind of divine or spiritual being mm-hmm. that was the original lineage of the kings exactly exactly so Just we're make sure i'm following <laughs> yeah well. you're we're on the same page so verse 18 Then David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? So if you know the Torah, this is where you go, I can't believe that just happened. So um, real quick, it says U-R-I-M is how it's spelled in in Exodus. Urim and Thummim. Urim, but then it's it's T-H-U-M-M-I-N, so it... Thumbin? <laughs> Thumbin, yeah, I like that. <laughs> okay, so, so did that, why do we have problems? We've talked about this before on air. This is bad. This is like this the, is like the one we can't <laughs> can't nail it down. So sorry, I just wanted to. Urim and, Maybe Urim if we and, embarrass ourselves enough publicly, we will get it right next time. <laughs> self-flagellation of a sort. Exactly. The, um, yeah. So yeah, I thought I heard Heiser say calling them the Urim and the uh, Urim. Yeah, like, it's just a weird word. It, 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 it really they, is. I, they are. They're very weird words. So, um, I'm, so carry on with what you were saying. I just had to get it figured out. No, we need to get it right. We we need to be responsible with that. So, uh, and I thought I looked it up, and I don't know. Okay, I've slept. This is what it says in my ESV. Okay, well, we'll we'll go with that. So, because you know what, I don't have to mention it again <laughs> throughout the rest of this episode. So we're done. Moving on. David goes in and he sits before the Lord. Nobody sits in the presence of the Lord. And you just don't do it. You you always stand out of reverence. And so the rabbis claim, and I think this is very interesting, claim on their part that God doesn't rebuke or correct David because it's an indication that only one who is a Davidic monarch has the right and privilege to sit in the presence of God. Hmm. Now, when you go further into the Bible and you read Ephesians 1.20, Hebrews 8.1, 10.12, 12.2, etc., the original readers of these New Testament passages where it talks about Jesus sitting with the Father is nothing less than a than the blatant claim Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Davidic sure. ruler. And the original readers would have gotten that. Well, it, yeah, I mean, I remember when we had uh, Becca Lavelle on, mm-hmm. um, I had to think and make sure I said the right sister. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, we had Becca on uh, when she was talking about the the Maccabees, and mm-hmm. they would, as long as they didn't use the word king, everyone was okay, right? And that's why it's such a big deal whenever, uh, whenever the the demons call out "Son of David," to yes, Jesus. yes, and it's it's a huge deal because this means God's rule is known in the land again. That they're no no longer being oppressed by not just foreign kings, but by foreign gods. Mm-hmm. And so, when your identity is, "Hey, I'm God's chosen people," guess which god you want to be? You know, most effective and powerful in your land. It's your god, not everybody else's. So, uh, there, there's significant theological implications in the fact that David sits down in the presence of God, and. I love the fact that the rabbis, without even realizing what they were saying, because this was, I believe these parts in the in the Talmud were actually written after Christianity and where a lot of the Talmud has this kind of reaction to Christianity, that this would still be a part of the language. Um, 
and that it is significant because they're actually confirming what the what the New Testament has to say about Jesus. Hmm. But David, um, one of the things that's really interesting about him is when he sits down and has this conversation with God, he, like I said, he doesn't mention the building of the temple at all. But what he does do he, is he grabs hold of the promise that's been extended. And he, he says, okay, this is the truth and the promise that's been revealed to me. So this is what I'm going to run with. And, you know, and he acknowledges God has brought him this far. The only reason he is king of Israel is because of God's direct intervention. And now how we read the rest of this passage is really going to kind of depend on how you view David. Mm-hmm. So are these sincere declarations of uh, awe and gratitude towards God or are they posturing? And are is this David saying the right thing because it's expected? I would like to think they were sincere given that God says that David is a man after his own heart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean that's just kind of Yeah kind of me i because because we do see david getting swept up in things mm-hmm. i mean we just saw in chapter six what <laughs> happens when he gets carried away and everybody right. who was around saw exactly what happens when david gets carried away there was absolutely no hiding his mistake in, in that and i i honestly i kind of think in some ways it's a mixture of both because okay number one it's i think it's sincere awe because david's not stupid he understands that God is bigger, greater, and mm-hmm. doing things that he do- totally does not deserve as a human being. At the same time, David's not someone who lets an opportunity slip by him. He is somebody who's going to capitalize on every advantage he has. And when you've got the God of the universe saying, hey, this is what I'm going to do for you, David's going to be like, let's nail that down. <laughs> you know, sure. Let's make sure that this is not something... I didn't mishear you. Uh, we did. There was no misunderstanding. This is what you said. So this is what I'm expecting from you on basis on the basis of what you said. So verse 19. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this instruction. This is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. So. Okay, first off, David addresses God by the title Lord God. He uses it seven times throughout this speech. It's a very unusual way to address God. We don't find it very often. The first time we find it is in Genesis 15 with Abraham. And so this is when Abraham receives the promise to God uh, that from God that God is going to give him an heir for his household mm-hmm. and that Eleazar is not going to be the one who inherits Abraham's household. So, so it's interesting. Both times we're we're looking at promises to to progeny when this title's used. It, exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, and this is also the this this speech with Abram and God because he's not Abraham at this point is also when God says, "I will make your sons as stars." And mm-hmm. when we talk about that star language, and we've covered this in several episodes, that star language isn't that they're as numerous as the stars. That language is not there. It's that they would be like the stars. Well, who are the stars? Stars are representative of the other gods and the Elohim. That that divine council uh, membership. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's, it's all right here. And we're seeing how, again, I tell you, the first time I heard that, I was like, wait (laughs) a minute. It really took me a while to to really kind of, uh, I guess, digest that information and and break it down and go oh that mm-hmm. is what it actually says there yeah and um again uh if you want more information on that we're going to refer you back to dr heiser uh his interview with david burnett yep um i don't have the episode number on that but i mean it's just some really rich information and also in that speech we get this promise that Abram's sons will be servants and sojourners who will be delivered with riches and victory over their enemies. And so, you know, this obviously is referring to the exodus out of Egypt. You know, they're slaves, they're servants right before the Passover. Mm. What do they do? They go to all the Egyptian neighbors and say, hey, can I borrow some gold? And the Egyptians give it to them and they carry it out, fulfilling God's promise to Abram. Mm. Now, these are very similar things to what God is promising David and his descendants. And we also have in this um, speech, David referring to himself as God's servants. 
David is going to refer to himself as God's servant more than any other person in the Bible, actually 13 times. The, so he says it most often. Solomon uses it seven times, and so he's runner-up in that contest. But it's also the title that is applied to Moses and Joshua. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've got a few other instances where people try to pick it up and go, oh, look how great I am. I'm God's servant. And God's like, you know, just shut up. Uh, but, <laughs> Don't want to hear it. <laughs> but David uses it because this is how God has referred to him. Sure. So David has every right to use it. And I, I really do, I, I, I think this speech kind of gives us some insight into why David is celebrated. Uh, he's recognizing God's greatness. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, David doesn't have a small opinion of himself. He is not the most humble man. No, but I mean, when you look at, he, he actually, I mean... I mean, he starts it out talking about what all God's done for him, Mm -hmm. which, you know, it's kind of a how great I am type line. But then he (laughs) says, this is a, this is but a small thing for the Lord. Well, and that's it. Because what David does, okay. (sighs) Because, because David, David seems like he can avoid this mistake, which is often made in the church, (laughs) which is to try to make God greater by making ourselves Less exactly is that where you were going? That is exactly where I was because going because there it seems like we have to denigrate humanity to a level beyond what it, that's just overreach of what scripture states about us, yes, in order to imagine God being that much greater. Elevate your imagination a little bit mm-hmm. and look at how. how <laughs> just throw that page <laughs> away, you done with that. We just look at how great God has made the world and how great God has made people. Yes, we're flawed. We have missed the mark. We have sinned. But that doesn't mean that we are not wonderfully made. Right. And so we have to think, we got, we've got to elevate our imagination and think of God as greater than the greatest things we've seen. Exactly. And stop this business of, well, we have to to denigrate ourselves in order to to make God seem that much better if, because our imagination is so stunted. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I and I, I personally think that the reason for this is because I think one <laughs> I think one of the reasons for this, and, and as much as I appreciate books on theology, as much as I appreciate books on scripture, pastors gotta start reading some sci-fi or something <laughs> and get their imaginations bigger. Absolutely. And 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 just imagine that these these are just things that people can imagine. Think of how much more God can imagine. Yes. Yes. Take everything we know to be true, every good thing that we know to be true about humanity. And there are some great things that human beings have done and wonderful acts of kindness. And so if we can accomplish that much, mm-hmm. that doesn't even begin to touch what God can do. And, and by changing that perspective. God yeah. becomes bigger. Yes, and he, he becomes bigger, and we... In our minds, anyway. He's we, always bigger. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we get to see how... We get to s- understand more of his greatness. Mm-hmm. And if we're... And I get what, you know, and of course, everyone's like, well, Paul says our righteousness is but filthy rags. Yes, I sometimes don't really care for Paul's verbiage. <laughs> but at the same time, you can't say that the things we have managed to accomplish are, are nothing are nothing and are they in comparison to what god can accomplish yes but that is a scale of where our imagination can start it's not to imagine that the good things we've done are evil well and what it what <laughs> <Okay>. it does <laughs> That's... No, because when you when you say that by comparison, man has to be smaller. You're saying, okay, I understand the limits and the depths of of God, and so now God, man has to fit within those boundaries that I have set for God. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so this is why we have to shrink man down. If we can look at humanity and go, okay, this is the, this is how great He is, and God exceeds this. Now there's no boundary on God. Right, and so it's right. it's the it's the shift of perspective, and it's being able to say, I can't stand in the realm of the infinite and pass judgment on how big God is. It, it is real humility. It's right. not false humility. It, it's yeah. and to be able to say God is so good that I can't even begin to to comprehend it. 
mm-hmm. it's and it's those people who are constantly denigrating humanity again beyond what I think the Bible mm-hmm. uh, what scripture allows over reading scripture and metaphor mm-hmm. those are the people who have a this this has to be this way this has to be this way this ha-, you know and so I that that's what frustrates me it's it's there there's there's a, a lacking of understanding and the elegance of the universe as designed and God's ability to be creative well and and what they're not saying and this is the implication and i i say this as someone who's worked who's been in an abusive situation and somebody who's worked with a lot of women who's been in an abusive situation when you have an abuser who has power mm-hmm. over their victim what the abuser their mindset is is i know i'm a terrible person so if you love me you must be even worse and so if we and the the victim ab- absorbs that mindset mm-hmm. and and it becomes how horrible of a person am i that i can love something so terrible and and it becomes this kind of self-perpetuating cycle that leads you into these really dark places of not being able to value and love yourself and not being able to value and love the person you proclaim to love and mm-hmm. so by extension when we take that kind of cycle of of abuse and victimology into our relationship with god we do turn God into this abuser, and he becomes this tyrant who, you know, how, you know, to put a really fine point on it so people can really grab it, if we're so horrible, how stupid is God to love us? You know, that's, that's what it comes down to, where if we're made in his image and we can celebrate that and we can say we need to do everything to honor that great gift he's given us— mm-hmm. Now we can respond in love and because he's a God who has extended love to us. Yeah. And so it, it's, it's nuanced. It's little shifts. It's little tweaks. But it's something that can only come about if we take time to really consider the implications of all the thought processes and not just go, well, I'm comfortable with this one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And honestly, if you're comfortable with any thought that you think about God, you probably need to re-examine your theology. All of it should make you uncomfortable at some level because it shouldn't be something you fully understand and fully think you, you get. It should, there should always be that room for the awe and there should be that room for the wonder and trying to figure out how we fit in, such, in a plan by, that's been presented by such a great and mighty God. And that's what David does. He doesn't diminish himself in order to fit into God's plan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He says, if I take up this much space in God's plan, and I know God's so much bigger, and this is just a glimmer of who God is, then I can rely on him to do more. Mm -hmm, And I think that's the reason why we can call David a man after God's own heart, because David begins to recognize God is always ready to do more. He wants to do more. There, there's always another layer to his plan, mm-hmm. and David never once diminishes God in his theology by diminishing himself too far with that overreading, like you were talking about. And so you can approach God with a proper humility that allows us to say, I'm nothing in comparison to him, but I'm everything in his company. Well, it's like the idea of this like trumped up brokenness that we, that we <laughs> I think we've talked about it on the show before, but there's just kind it's of been this, a while. <laughs> this trend in, in a lot of worship music for, you know, we, we mm-hmm. have our, we have our happy clappy hype song at the beginning. Right. We have our, our you know, our transitional song that kind of starts slowing everyone down. Mm-hmm. And then, then we have our, our last song that's about, you know, slow and about how terrible I am. And, and it's like, you, you know, that's not how this song that David has. Now there are times for us to go to God and repentance, say written repentance, and say, "Hey, I messed uh-huh, up." Uh huh. Absolutely. But I know because of your greatness, mm-hmm. your 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 goodness, mm-hmm. you you are just to forgive those who repent. Yeah. And to and and that's that's actually the other thing. You know, everyone's like, "Well, you can't just expect God to do that because you repent." Well, the thing is, repentance is more than just an act. It is in the heart, and exactly. I think that's I think that's why part of the reason we don't have like a a ritual for repentance is so that it can't be faked, right? 
right? It has to be individualized. It, it has to be in the heart. And so it's ruthlessly individualized. Uh, yeah, it, it really is. Um, but there's that this tendency to to try to manufacture this trumped up brokenness every week to make yourself feel more humble before God. Well, what we're doing is we're saying if we if we can feel the proper amount of brokenness, then somehow we can merit and deserve His love, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and that's not how it works. And like you said, I'm not saying we shouldn't we shouldn't feel brokenness. I actually wrote up a thing I put on Facebook um, on a Raven Creek page recently about repentance. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the problems with the church is that we don't embrace repentance. We either focus on it too much or we don't focus on it at all. Right. And it, and this is just a human flaw. It's something we all do. We like our extremes. Extremes are easier for us to live in than it is for any kind of balance and uh, tension within those concepts. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, when you mess up, you repent, grieve about the, the, the damage it's done to your relationship. Yeah. But then Res- a- restore the things you can restore and, and, count- and, then, and then move on. But the, and the thing is, yeah, we, we, <laughs> we spent too much time, you and I, in this environment, <laughs> at least, in places where repentance meant walking down the aisle and crying on Sunday. Uh-huh. But there was never, there was very little information about what to do after that. Right. There was not, there was not a celebration of, of returning. There mm-hmm. wasn't mm-hmm. anything to do beyond that. There wasn't, oftentimes in some of the places we were at, there wasn't solid discipleship. Right. And what what there was was just a lot of memorization. <laughs> right. And again, don't get me wrong. Memorize scripture. It's good for you to Served have it in me your well. Head, but we were never taught how to think about it. So mm-hmm. uh, that's my gripe. Um, <laughs> that's that's my rant. I, I'm well, going to turn it's... it back over to you because I think we've only gone three verses. <laughs> right. But you know, th- there's there's a lot to this that when we start to live out these these scriptures and look at how they can be lived that really forces us to move beyond what we may have known. And that's the, and the thing is, once you think you know what a passage of scripture says, I guarantee you that's about the time you're really going to start learning what it might hold. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so never think you've arrived. Because um, I was a little bit of a rabbit trail. I was thinking about, oh, what are we going to do when we get done with, you know, suppose we keep going with this forever, whatever, you know, however many years, and we've gone through the whole Bible, what are we going to do? And I'm like, well, probably at that point, it'll be time to go back through everything we covered. Start all over again. Yeah, because uh, we'll have learned so much that we'll see it from a completely different perspective. Right. So... Yeah, um, it's like you, you you never read the same book twice. <laughs> right, because you're never the same person when you return to it. So David makes this really interesting uh, statement in there, too. He says, this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Now, the ESV, this is read kind of as, as a declaration uh, in response to God's declaration about the future of his family. The NIV actually translates it a little differently. It says, is this your usual way of dealing with man? So... There, there's some debate on how we should would read this, and honestly, the Hebrew doesn't offer a whole lot of insight about which way is best to um, to read those, because it could be an amazed question, is this how you usually deal with man, you know, implying that David is getting some kind of uh, special treatment. It could be an affirmation that this is usually how God deals with humanity, and so it's what David should expect. And we, we definitely have prior examples of God revealing the future fate of one's family. I mean, obviously, Genesis 12 and 15, those are in there. We have the priest in 1 Samuel 2 and 3, where, where God said, tells Eli, by the way, your family's going to get cut off, and they're going to be begging for food and just hoping to catch a job. Um, and then we have it about the king in, in 1 Samuel 15. This is what's going to happen with the king's family. Yeah. Well, and in the, the JPS, it says, may that, may that be the law for all people. And uh, so similar to what the ESV mm-hmm. has here. So I'm kind of kind of also wondering, is this like a, uh, is it like saying, you've dealt well with me? May it be the... Everyone. Yeah, deal with everyone this way. Is it like a blessing for for everyone? Or, you know, hey, this should be the example everyone can look at for what they should expect from God. And so this is how it is an instruction, if you want to follow the ESV. Um, 
writing. Now, what's interesting about it, it's so unclear that the writer of Chronicles goes, yep, not even going to put that in there, not opening that can of worms. So they completely skip over that line when they recount this conversation. Yeah. So. Yeah, and, and then, you know, in the JPS, it says meaning in the Hebrew is uncertain. There's a footnote there. Right. So. Yeah, and, you know, and sometimes... We just have to accept that language changes, and sometimes things get lost in those changes. And the the overall message of the Bible, we, we haven't lost it. So verse 20, and what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because your promise and according to your heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. So you know, David's affirming God's promised it. Mm-hmm. Uh, David has nothing to add to what God has done. He's received this greatness uh, with joy. And he's talking about himself in the third person. Uh, yeah, which is kind of weird, but, you know, it's David. So, <laughs> and but but we see David kind of expressing, the, not kind of, he is expressing this very balanced understanding of himself in relationship to God. He is God's servant. He he is experiencing this this greatness from God. Everything is owed to God. He's there's no equivocation and there's no well you know I kind of helped you out this one time or you know I was such a wonderful guy. What other choice did you have? He, right. He. But there's no false humility. And yeah, and and even in, even well, and even in, in David acknowledging his greatness, mm-hmm. there's no presumption that he's doing anything that only God can do. Right. Right. And that's kind of. <laughs> Again, you 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 can still acknowledge God giving you great gifts and you doing good things for the things you can do. Right. But the things that only God can do, that's where you have to draw that line. Well, and there comes a point where if it's like, if nothing I do matters, then why try? Sure. And so David's Psalms, they all call us to action. And whether that action is repentance or that action is going forth in praise, they call us to to respond, not just to go, oh, well, God's God's a big God. That's wonderful. There, there, there's that James verse, faith without works is dead. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so, you know, faith, you know, you don't have to have works to, to get faith, but faith inspires you to do. Sure. And so... But now here's where it gets fun, because verse 22, therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and we're hearing that Psalms 82 language again, there is none like you, and there's no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Okay, so anytime, you know, this is cheesy, but it's in every seminary class, you're going to hear somebody say it, whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. Um, so when you get this therefore, David is saying, okay, everything I'm getting ready to say to you is based on what I just affirmed Mm -hmm. to be true about you. God is great because he's made a promise. He's fulfilled his promises. He's revealed the fate of David's family and his legacy. Uh, He's brought greatness to David, and he's made known all of these things to David. This is what David is basing what he's getting ready to say uh, is all on what God has done. And now we we kind of think, oh, well, this is just the way it is with God. God makes a prophecy. God makes a promise. And so it, it's who he is. And the thing is, in ancient cultures, you didn't know what the gods were thinking. You had to go through to great lengths, slaughter a goose or something, mm-hmm. in order to find out what the god was thinking. And even then, it was uncertain. Pluck out a chicken liver. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, and we have psalms written by ancient people during the same time period lamenting the unknowable will of the gods. You know, how can I know how to live? Because God isn't being clear. Watch out for those people promoting secret will stuff. Uh, yeah, really. So... David tells us this is precisely the contrast he wants us to see. Other gods can't be trusted because they, you know, they may not keep their promises. And God frequently forces these other gods into situations where they can't keep their promises. Like, oh, I don't know, keeping Canaan as the land where the Midianites Mm -hmm. and, you know, the Philistines lived. And if you go back, you know, again, Greek mythology, this is after this time period, but 
a lot of us are familiar with it, go back and read some of those stories and look at how many times there's a loophole in the promise that any God offers humanity. Yeah, and it usually doesn't help the people. Oh, no, never, never, never. If you want, actually, if you want a really good modern day, and I I probably shouldn't say this because I'm not recommending you watch this, but um, Supernatural, when you look at the way the demons promise things to humanity, there's always a loophole. There's always Mm -hmm. some gotcha at the end. And if the gods bothered to tell you what they might be promising to begin with, then you you might be a little ahead of the game. But again, you're back to that loophole problem. Uh, other gods feared the day when their human servants might use any knowledge against them. And mm-hmm. the stories often reflect how gods enjoy humiliating their servants instead of elevating their servants. So you have this great contrast that David's very aware of because God has brought greatness to David. Yeah. And I love that. And you know, other gods are too insecure to reveal their intentions to their servants. And here's David saying, I can rejoice and be, be happy with you because you have been uh, open and honest with me. Now, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about a translation issue I have with the ESV uh, that they chose to translate the Hebrew here, no God besides you, which I think is really kind of an awful translation. Uh, which verse was that again? That is, well, I don't know. I dropped my paper. 22. Ah, 22. <laughs> so uh, it's probably a better translation is there's no God like you. And so... um that has some implications, and so we'll work through about why. Uh, according to all we have heard with our ears, David is telling us that the people know just how unique God is from the other gods because they've heard the with their ears. The truth has been revealed both through God's prophecy to them and in the history of their nation, mm-hmm. but also in contrast with the surrounding myths of, and legends of the other gods that they that they've heard. Right. They've heard with their ears. So this is why David can say, "Hey." I there is no God like you, not just besides you, because besides with the S implies there's nobody else. Right. And that's not what the Bible says. We've already covered like a million times what why that's untrue. And plus, who else would be in a better situation to know that these foreign gods, these na- gods of foreign nations, were completely unlike the God of Israel than David, who lived among the Philistines. Right. So he he has intimate familiarity with the dis- differences between foreign gods and the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. And this is backed up by experience. So verse 23, And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth who God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by... Tr- driving out before your people when you redeem from for yourself from Egypt a nation and its gods. So much in this verse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, okay, so first of all, let's acknowledge the problems. This is considered to be the most difficult verse in all of Samuel to translate. And uh, Zamora calls it notoriously difficult. That's how he describes it. And this is pretty consistent across the board with all translators. And um, so I think one thing we can't miss is there's definitely the divine council worldview in mind here. Uh, I think that's pretty evident, even uh, whatever translation we take. So what we're going to do is we're going to take this verse phrase by phrase and we're going to stick pretty close to how Zamora breaks it down because this doesn't need to be just Emily thinks this or that. This is what a bona fide, certified, proven expert in the field, what he has to say about it. And so we start with the first phrase, and who is like your people, Israel? So after establishing God's uniqueness from among the other gods in the previous verses, Davis, D- Davis, David claims that Israel is unique because God is unique. Mm-hmm. So that one's pretty easy. Not a lot of discrepancy or fight there. Um, next, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people. 
one nation. This is the same word uh, there for one that we find in the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. That Echad, one. Uh, it's here in uh, Deuteronomy 6.4 and it, it, here in Samuel and, and in Deuteronomy 6.4. 6, the, the meaning of this is not one as in a numeral one. It, it's more unique, singular in nature. It, it's something that nothing else can compare to because there's nothing else like it in existence. So it's not negating the presence of other gods or in the Shema, because when we see it here, David isn't saying there's no other nations in the world. I mean, we know that he's not saying that. He's getting ready to go fight a bunch of battles against them. He's saying Israel is a unique nation because it belongs to a unique God. And you get that when you again, bring these fundamental principles together because the Shema is a prayer that is very central to the identity of the Jewish nation and the Jewish faith. Now, whom God went to redeem, and this is where we start to find some dispute in proper translation. Uh, The Hebrew here, the God who went to redeem, whom God went to redeem is actually just Elohim. So when we talk about Elohim, we know that it is the name of God. We've talked mm-hmm. about it before. It is written in the plural in the Hebrew, and it's almost always written in the plural, when, even when it's talking about the one God of Israel. Mm-hmm. And um, when we read it, if we read it in the, as the name of God, then we translate it as being, being singular. If we read it as referring to other gods, then it becomes gods in, in plural. So. What dictates whether or not you read it as a name or a description is context. Okay. So context, when you're looking at Hebrew, usually means what you're going to do is you're going to look at the verbs that apply to that noun. And if the verbs are plural, then the noun would be plural. Mm. If the verb's singular, then the noun should be singular. Now... In this verse, the verb went, so the God who went or the gods who went, the verb is plural. So technically, by that standard, you should translate this as the gods went to redeem. So this raises some interesting theological issues. Yeah. (laughs) Because what role do gods have to play in the redemption of Israel? So we're going to come back to this, okay? So I I want you to kind of put that in your your file cabinet and keep it there. This same verse is repeated in 1 Chronicles 17.21. And a lot of times when you have repeated verses, you have a chance to look for them for, for clarification. And so the problem is in Chronicles, instead of reading Elohim, it reads Ha Elohim. Anytime you have a He or the equivalent of the English H mm-hmm. in front of a Hebrew word, it becomes the definite article, the. Mm-hmm. So it reads the God or get this, the gods went down to redeem. So that doesn't clear anything up. Now, if we look at the verbs in Chronicles, which is halak, um, which is to go, the verb in Chronicles is singular. And the Septuagint decides to follow the translation, this translation from Chronicles and insert it into Samuel. So so the the Septuagint has it, God went down. Uh, The God went down. they drop the plural. They they say that it is singular, but we've got to keep in mind because there's another part of context. I know I'm like totally nerding out over no, here. No, it's fine. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious to see how this resolves. The right. tension is rising. <laughs> well, here's some more tension because we've got to keep in mind, Chronicles and the Septuagint were both written in a time of exile. Mm-hmm. And so the biblical writers were really beginning to push back against all these foreign gods that surrounded them in these foreign cultures. Right. And they were really trying to affirm the uniqueness of God himself. And so we see this in the writings of the prophets when they start talking about foreign gods. They they discount them as worthless, as powerless, and they do this. One, one of the ways that the prophets do this is by really focusing on God's unique nature and absolute power. And 
they just dismiss these other gods. The, the, the language is very dismissive. It's just they don't, um, they don't exist. So instead of focusing on the gods' attack against Israel, they actually focus on Israel's behavior. Mm-hmm. And so this is where we get this idea that other gods don't exist because the prophets don't really talk about them a lot. The prophets are talking about Israel's response to them. And since they're dismissed as you know worthless, well, then they don't really exist, which it, that's us reading into the text what's not there. And it's us saying, oh, well, we just don't know what to do with all these earlier writings where the other gods are um, acknowledged. So another way was to address the nations of these gods that serve these gods. So basically, instead of talking about Dagon or Marduk or anything like that, we talk about Tyre, we talk about Assyria, we talk about the nations rather than the, the god that serves that nation. Okay. So this is how the prophets take the focus again off these foreign gods. This was also the same time that Chronicles and the Septuagint were being written, is during these time periods whenever the, there's the, the people are, are in exile. So Samuel, of course, predates this. And I think one of the things we need to do is to respect the time period in which this particular passage was originally written, which was closer to David's time, Mm -hmm. and as such would reflect the theology of that time. And real quick note, in Chronicles, when the the chronicler writes about, rewrites this phrase, it drops that phrase, uh, a nation and its gods. It just says Egypt. Right. So that way you don't have to look at the gods. Again, that, that way of dismissing the gods is not even existing and not having any kind of impact. And so one of the ways we try to figure this out is to also look at other passages with similar wording. So mm-hmm. Zamora takes us to Psalm 78. Now, Psalm 78 recounts the history of Israel. And it starts with the covenant of Jacob and in the captivity of Egypt and the events of the Exodus and Israel's time in the wilderness. So I want to read this passage. This is verse 49 through 51. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare from them, did not spare them from death. But gave their lives over to plague. He struck down the firstborn of Egypt, the first fruits of their strength, in the tents of Ham. So, for this reason, because of what it says here in Psalm 78, Zamora reads 2 Samuel 7.23 as refer- referring to re- destroying angels, supernatural beings, the Elohim being used the same way we see it being used in um, the Divine Council worldview. The Elohim are not necessarily God, but they are spiritual beings, divine beings. And when Psalm 78 says, hey, God sent divine beings, these angels, destroying angels, to destroy the the firstborn of Egypt, this is the methodology that God uses. Now, if we accept the superscription of Psalm 78 as accurate, then this is a psalm that was authored by Asaph, and this is one of David's temple musicians. He's serving at the same time as He-Man and Ethan. You know, we just talked about Psalm 89. Ethan wrote Psalm 89, and so matter of fact, if you looked at Psalm at Chronicles, First Chronicles 15:19, in the list list of names, it has Heman, Asaph, and Ethan. So the three of them are together. And Psalms 89, obviously, is, um, is a divine counsel worldview psalm that we build on. Yeah. Like, I want to okay. throw this out here, because it, it, it's actually, I kind of like the, the JPS. It, it doesn't really change much, but it says, uh, he did, oops, where, where, what verse was I? He inflicted his burning anger upon them with wrath and indignation, tr- uh, uh, trouble a band of deadly messengers. Right. Uh, uh, because I know, like, but you know, angel messenger. Right. Well, uh, we tend to translate that, 
but a, a band of deadly messengers. Well, and that's the thing, because if we look at messenger there, uh, so often we do want to translate it as angel in the Bible, mm-hmm. and there's times that it should be and times that it shouldn't be. And so we have to, again, we, we're looking at context. Yeah, well, it just kind of sounds like a mafia. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> I'm going to send you a message, a horse head in your bed. Send you a message <laughs> you're not going to forget. Yeah. Quest you couldn't refuse. Yeah. Well, so, but I think one of the things we need to look at, now I'm kind of straying outside of Zamora here, as far as the superscription and placing this that psalm, Psalm 78, as being written in the time of David, um, because First Chronicles does acknowledge that Asaph was a prophet, who's in as a prophet he would see into the spiritual realm. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that Asaph would actually reflect the shared a shared theology with David from this time period because they inhabited the same time period. And there's a good possibility that Asaph was with David throughout those times in the wilderness when they lived among the Philistines mm-hmm. and they were on the run from Saul, and. Um, so if we read the full clause according to what this information we're gathering, for whom the angels or for whom the divine beings went to pay a ransom or redeem. So obviously that's problematic because it makes it sound like angels or divine beings redeemed Israel and not God. Mm-hmm. But that's only if we impose a modern reading on that because Everyone from this time knew one fundamental fact. If you were doing something on behalf of the king, it's the same as the king doing it. Sure. So now your theological, um, your theological problem, it, it's gone. I mean, we, and we still use this language today. It only becomes a sticking point when we want to start getting so nitpicky about theology that we miss the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. Because you know, when we talk about Alexander the Great conquered all the known world, did he do that personally? Sure. <laughs> you know, did, did he go in and kill everyone that opposed him? No, he had an army who did this. No wonder this. he died so young. He was all worn out from all that killing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, you know, armies were not a separate entity from the king in those days. An army was an extension of the king. Yeah. And it was the same as having the king fight. And so... When we remember that and we recognize that the sole purpose of an army existing was to carry out the king's will, that's the only reason we, we can, uh, they were allowed to exist. Now we can look at this Lord of hosts, this Lord of legions who leads armies of angels. Why do they exist? To carry out God's will. And that's very much a part of the theology of Samuel, and it's very in keeping with everything we've seen up to this point. And so we we need to remember that when we started in Samuel, 1 Samuel 1, the first person to ever use this term, Lord of hosts, this God who leads the armies, was Hannah, and mm-hmm. she gives the prophecy that sets all this in motion. So a lot of these problems that we have are really of our own making. And it's because when you look at just the Hebrew words, it, that's how it reads. Sure. It, I mean, it's right there. And the only reason why it becomes a point of debate is because we have failed to understand that Elohim is not just a name for God. It actually is an expression of a spiritual being. Any, It's an address, as Heiser puts it. Mm. it it's not just... A location. Yeah, that this is where they're located. They're located in the spiritual realm, which makes sense when we remember that Psalms 89 explains Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 7. Yeah. So... Kind of follow? Uh, yeah, it's uh, my main point with saying all of that. I know there's a long way to get there. Is a lot of times when we hear criticisms about the Bible and what the Bible has to teach us, it's not because there's a real problem with what's in the text. It's because it hasn't fit our presuppositions and the bias that we bring to the text. And there's Fair. a perfectly rational reason for this verse to read this way. So, making himself a name, 
Obviously, that goes back to, to Genesis 12, too. I think we've covered that a lot in the last few uh, episodes. We've brought it up several times. Yeah, uh, God is going to give Abraham a name. And, you know, of course, this follows directly on the hills of, of Genesis 11, with where no one in that story had a name. Mm-hmm. And their intent was to make themselves a name. And um, the the debate on this part of the verse is whether the name is God making a name for himself or he's making a name for Abraham because um. the Hebrew is a little ambiguous and the context doesn't give us any kind of clarification um, because the events that David's referring to don't clear things up. You know, Israel has become recognized as a distinct nation within the Exodus. Yeah. And that's really the first time they become known as a national um, entity uh, is in the Exodus. But God also became famous and feared through the events of the Exodus. Think back to mm-hmm. Rahab and Jer- Jericho. Yeah. Yeah. So people knew who well, the even God— even the Philistines with the Ark, once once things started happening, they're like, oh, yeah, that that's right. This one's the one with the plagues. We should send it back. <laughs> right. Exactly. They knew exactly what had happened because God became famous in the Exodus. Mm-hmm. And so now I kind of wonder, and this is just me wondering, if the ambiguity isn't intentional. Because remember, David had just affirmed Israel's unique because God is unique. Mm-hmm. And so maybe David's you know, allowing this blurring of lines because in his mind, Israel Israel's identity is so closely tied with the identity of God. Just just a thought. So, and David is enough of a poet to do that kind of thing. Yeah. So, next phrase in this, and doing great, and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt and a nation and its gods. So this is the last part of that verse. And so if we we have to kind of take this all together, or it doesn't make sense. Uh, we have the acts described, which we know mm-hmm. Exodus, and it is the the conquest of Canaan. And it's interesting that this is the first time in the prayer that we are specifically told this is what David's talking about. Before this, we were just making presumptions. Now we have Egypt mentioned specifically, so there's no mistake. And um, the inclusion here is actually far more than just clarifying, because while the prayer this whole time has been in prose, I mean, David's just talking to God. At this point, David, always the psalmist, employs a poetic device. So in Hebrew, whenever you're talking poetry, you have these repeated lines where the first line often, the second line often explains the first line, Mm -hmm. the parallelisms. And there's examples of this all over the Psalms. We've got several different kinds. We have synonymous, we have antithetical, synthetic. I'm not going to get into what all of those are, but the parallelisms Um, the way they're set up is sometimes it can be line A and line B, or it can be line A and then line C. So if you have line A, B, and C, and D, or sometimes it could be line A and line D. Right. And you don't always have them back to back is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So, but when you put them all together, you get these uh, examples. Here's a real easy one. Psalms 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. So the heavens and the skies above, those are synonyms. So this is a synonymous parallelism. Uh, Declare and proclaim, again, synonyms. So they declare in line one the glory of God. Line two tells us what that glory of God is. It's his handiwork. So handiwork and the glory of God should also be read as synonyms because every word and the lines up to that point have been synonyms. Mm-hmm. So this is a way of telling you God's handiwork is his glory. And mm-hmm. so now Robert Alter, who I typically totally agree with, actually says that this is just too random for David to just like throw this in here. So somebody had to have gone back and, and tweaked it and made it sound a little bit more elevated in speech and style sometime after the conversation took place. Yeah. I've been around too many songwriters. I have too. <laughs> I'm like, man, I because there's there's some things you songwriters will throw in and you're like, 
Oh, wow. That's that's it, crazy. It's yeah. a part of who y'all guys are. And you know, this is what just kind of flows out. And so... Well, I guess, yeah. And as a songwriter, there are sometimes I'll come up with a line and be like, how did I even get there? That's really good. <laughs> Those are the best times when you write something that you just... It, just falls into place. But what what this does, this functions beca- uh, as in the parallelism, is the redemption he's referring to is the redemption from Egypt. But then the great and awesome things are the plagues and the passage through the, the sea. And so that's what the parallelism shows you, is that redemption and great and awesome things, they, they go together. Yeah. And so, but it's David. Can't be that simple. He's got a twist. And the twist is we've got the same word for repent or redeem uh, used twice with two different meanings. The first time he uses it in the sense of ransom. God sends these angels Mm -hmm. to ransom. The second time he's using it in the sense of being released. And so... uh, you know, I totally geeked out, and I think I feel <laughs> I'm going to have some some uh, compassion on uh, on everyone. But uh, let's just say that the re- the reason why we know it's to release the second time is because Egypt has the mem on the front, and so it's released from Egypt. Okay. So you, this is the reason why um, why it's so important. But in this in the speech, David has a really high view of God because he knows God. He knows his history. And as a practice poet, it makes sense that this is what flows out of him. And it shows you that the truths that these just inhabit David's heart, that they can just spill out without any kind of practiced, you know, he's not trying to be an artist in this moment, he's talking to God Mm -hmm. and this is what's inspired. And so there's more to this speech and I think we're going to wait to get into it, but um, this, this chapter in second Samuel has given me so much to dig into. Yeah, and hear this all this time. You thought you weren't going to enjoy the Samuel study. I really, I had no clue I was going to enjoy it this much. <laughs> I didn't either. I mean, there's a, there's there's way more theology there than what we think, and it really makes me sad that we don't learn a lot of this earlier in our lives. Typically, well, and like, I think it's not a, it's not a common thing for churches to go into. No, it's it's not, and I think one of the reasons is because so often we're told, "Oh, this is a history book." Yeah, and so we we don't look at it as being a great theological lesson. And one of the, the things I really appreciate from having studied some of the Jewish backgrounds of, of the Christian faith is there is this principle that no law is ever applied unless you have a story that shows the application. Right, and so if you want to understand how these laws are enacted and applied applied within the Old Testament and the Jewish culture, you need to know these stories because so often in the application, this is where we see the real purpose and meaning of the law. Because you know, before it's enacted, it's just an abstract. Right, and I that's one of the things I like about uh, David Instone Brewer's work. He's really good at taking these laws and showing us how they're enacted both mm-hmm. within the Bible and within the cultural and historical uh, circumstance to illuminate what the text is trying to tell us. Uh, again, no, you know, connection to David Instant Brewer, just, just a big fan of his work. Yeah. Does, so, does good stuff. Anyway, I, I hope I didn't, you know, bore y'all too much with all the, it was kind of interesting. I'm going to have to go back and listen to it again to make sure I've processed all of it, but I think it's good stuff because it's a, that that's a very weird verse. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Yeah, and there's more to it because we're going to get into we're going to dive into how that verse actually shapes the rest of the par- the prayer. So, all right. Well, I'll be looking forward to that uh next time we get back together in the studio. So, everyone out there, hopefully you enjoyed what we uh discussed and 
Hopefully it was edifying. <laughs> we'll see. Not just me having fun with the grammar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or me ranting about things. Uh, so if you want to be part of the rant slash discussion or nerddom or whatever it is we're doing this <laughs> this week or next week or whenever, um, hit us up on the social media, Raven Creek SC or RavenCreekSC.com is the website where you can find this show and currently three others. Um, that would be Change My Mind with Luke T. Harrington, The Commentarians with Joe Zaragoza, and our newest one, not our newest one, but the newest one of the part of the family, put on by, put on. <laughs> Who, uh, uh, hosted by. Hosted by, that's it. Um, well, I guess kind of the same. Anyway, but, uh, <laughs> Joshua Sherman, uh, who's been doing Absolutely. a great job. I've been enjoying that that show. So um, be sure to check those out and uh, let us know if you want to be part of the conversation. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Oddities Podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.